The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber after a slow news weekend. Very glad to welcome Paul Holmes onto the show. Paul, where were you when Sir Martin Sorrell resigned? Uh, I was in, um, predictably enough, seat 11K on a Virgin flight from LA to London. Oh, you were midair? Yep. Yep, midair. Okay, so you didn't land to this momentous outpouring of, well, all kinds of reactions, really. There's, there's I think, grief in some quarters. There's adulation. There are, uh, some people are, are quite happy to see Martin's, Sir Martin's professional demise. Um, how surprised were you by this turn of events? Um. Well, not especially. I think the writing was on the wall when um, when the internal investigation was launched. And at that point, um, it seemed to me more likely than not that it would end in his departure. You know, the, the internal caveats about the, the amounts involved being not material. Um, it's, it seemed to me that it was, if not quite inevitable, at least highly likely at that point. Um, I think it came a little more abruptly than, than I'd expected. Just a little bit. But, but, but if you rewind, say, to 12 months ago, or even more recently than that, it's hard to envisage that this would be how the Martin Sorrell era ended. I think we all knew that there would be bloodshed. He never looked like he was going to give this thing up voluntarily. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing you didn't think it would happen in, in this manner. This seems quite a bleak ending. Um, it does, but, but to, a, to a tenure that was not without sort of scandal and criticism. I mean, a lot of it revolving around his extravagant compensation package. Um, but but no, I I I didn't think it would. I didn't think it would blow up over something um, quite this um, obscure. Yes. And so, just like that, on a Saturday night, the the Martin Sorrell era ends. Thirty three years at the helm of WPP, um, a period in which I think it's probably safe to say he changed the face of the agency industry um, coincides quite neatly with your own career covering this industry. Uh, and I wondered, how do you see his impact in terms of what was the agency industry like before Martin Sorrell? Well, it's interesting because I mean, Martin, um, Martin is very much a product of um, sort of the, the industry as it was, right? The Saatchi and Saatchi era, mm. in, particularly in sort of British advertising and, um, and public relations. Um, but, but he has then gone on to completely eclipse 
and reshape the world that he came out of. Um, as you say, I, I started writing about public relations in um, 85, which was the same time that, same year that Martin bought his um, controlling stake in wire and plastic products. You know, sort of the, the year that I moved to the US to start writing about the business, um, Martin bought JWT and, and Hill and Alton with it. Uh -huh. um, it was his first foray into, into public relations. Um, and you know, at, at that point, more or less triggered, I think, a sort of avalanche of PR agency acquisitions by um, giant holding companies. Though it must be said that most of those acquisitions appeared to be um, accidental. In other words, when Martin bought <laughs> JWT, he was buying JWT and Hill and Alton just happened to come along. Uh, when he bought uh, Bursa Marstella um, a couple of years later, um, or, or rather when he bought Y&R a, a few years later, Bursa Marstella and Cohen Wolf happened to come along. When he bought the Maver, um, the, the firms at that time were called, I believe, Dudley Anderson, Yutzi, and Adams and Reinhardt. Wow. And they came along. So the, 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 he, he became the biggest owner of PR agencies in the world, almost, it seemed, unintentionally. <laughs> By accident. Yeah. That's an interesting observation because it didn't really ever seem like his attention was that occupied by the, um, the, the performance of his public relations firms? Well, okay, so I think there, there are a couple of things to be said about that. I mean, I, I think once it became apparent that public relations was, um, you know, a, a, a not unsubstantial part of, of the WPP story, um, he began to take an interest. But, um, but, but you could make a case that, that in the first sort of, um, the first decade of, of his PR ownership, um, his, his modus operandi was something close to benign neglect. Um, and not always, not always benign. Um, you know, the, the Hill and Knowlton, um, the Hill and Knowlton that he acquired, for example, had been on an aggressive acquisition spree um, just before it was bought. Um, it had bought Carl Bayer and Associates, which at the time was the third largest global PR firm. It had bought uh, Gray and Company in Washington, D.C. And the latter acquisition in particular brought a lot of problems with it in terms of controversy. Um, the CEO of Hill Knowlton at the time, Bob Dylan Schneider, um, was a controversial figure. And I think many in the industry, and frankly, many at Hill and Knowlton, um, felt that Bob should have, been, should have been removed or replaced much, much quicker than he was. And, uh, and that, um, that was, interestingly enough, a, a, a pattern that, um, that, that followed on several occasions at WPPPR agencies that, um, that, that sort of leaders who had become problematic 
um, were not replaced quickly. And given Martin's reputation for ruthlessness, um, it's sort of interesting to, to look at that. I mean, I'm, I'm never quite sure whether Martin is, in fact, sort of not, not quite as happy to confront um, underperforming CEOs as his reputation would suggest, or whether in the case of the PR operations, um, you know, it just, he, he just, he just didn't deem it important enough to intervene um, aggressively. Mm. Yeah, we actually had a comment in the, in the reaction piece we posted yesterday where the head of, an ex-CEO of one of WPP's largest ad agencies basically said exactly what you've just said, that, that Martin would tolerate underperformers and would shrink away from direct confrontation. Uh, and I'd say, suggest it was also an approach that extended to his agency management. He seemed to love to collect agencies. I think he had, you know, by the time he left, uh, hundreds of them, um, and never really seemed to want to take any particular action um, on them. There were no real consequences if, if they didn't perform well until the last few months, it seems, when he started to merge a few of them. But but your your point, I think, is right. I think he was a lot less ruthless when it came to people than perhaps his reputation might suggest. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, his attitude towards public relations was was interesting. I mean, look, we, we had him um, come and speak at um, uh, I, maybe our second or third global PR summit. And, you know, he was, he, he was very knowledgeable and very smart about public relations and its its potential and its shortcomings. I mean, you know, he had the audience, an audience of PR people in the palm of his hand. Mm. Um, uh, an absolutely terrific session. Um, you know, he, um, he was an astute observer of the geopolitical landscape. I mean, to an extent that nobody else in that industry is, um, uh, and, and you know, in that in that respect, he's sort of irreplaceable. But I always got the feeling that the the only part of the public relations industry that really sort of fascinated him was um, the the sort of Washington public affairs business. Mm, yeah, and he, you know, he was a serial acquirer of those kind of um, you know high powered lobbying operations. Glover Park. Well, Glover Park, um, Wexler Reynolds. Yeah. Um, QGA, was that? Well, you know, my, my personal favorite, um, Black Manifest, Stone and Kelly, um, was, was acquired by Burson Marstella. And then it was merged with a firm called Golden Liebengood, which was another Washington, D.C. Um, lobbying firm. Um, and, and then, I, in all honesty, I'm not entirely sure um, what happened. It became that it, it became, I think, you know, black, black Kelly Scruggs. B K S H became. Okay, I mean, there were a series of mergers, right? Because he'd also bought Timmons, he'd also bought Wexler Reynolds. Um, then the then then it then all of that sort of merged together to become Prime Policy Group. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, 
I mean, sort of fascinating to to link um, link Martin to Charles Black and Manafort and Roger Stone and all of the guys who are making headlines. But yeah. no, I mean, he loved that, and you could see it in the CEOs he appointed to mm. Bursa Mastello and Hill and Malton, right? I mean, he called people Howard Pastor, Mark Penn, um, Don Mayer, uh, Jack Martin another public affairs firm that he acquired, obviously, public strategies. I mean, he loved to pull people out of um, that political world and put them in, in charge of um, giant PR agencies, with, I think it's probably fair to say, mixed success. Right. Um, but I think, I think he was a little bit sort of enthralled by the Washington stuff. Right. And, and meanwhile much of the growth we've seen from big agencies over the past decade appears to have been driven by consumer marketing budgets. Um, is it that simple an explanation um, in terms of why his, his big PR firms didn't perform that well with the, with the sort of the notable exception of Conan Wolf, which is of course a consumer focused firm? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you were um, looking at the portfolio over the last five years, maybe 10 years, um, you'd have to say that it was over-indexed towards um, corporate and public affairs and, and underrepresented in consumer and digital and social. Mm. Um, and, you know, the marketing, the marketing side of our business was much faster to, um, to adapt to the sort of new rules than the corporate side. Um, because marketers were much faster to adapt than, than corporate communications people. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting you mentioned that he, he, he was an astute observer of the public relations industry. I, I always thought, um, you know, he's, he was brilliant on stage and he could talk about digital and data and the areas where the PR industry needed to go. But if you, and you know this, if you ever had an interview with him and asked him questions about his agency performance, uh, his PR agency performance specifically, it definitely felt like he was out of his comfort zone and would rather be talking about his big ad agencies or media agencies or indeed his, his research or data businesses. I mean, did you, did you find that, that phenomenon as well when you spoke to him? Um, yeah, but, but I always felt that that was, um, I always felt that that was a focus for Martin on, on sort of the big picture, um, and, and events that were shaping, well, so let, let's be clear about this, right? Martin, Martin was always much more intelligent about the craft or the profession or the practice, mm. right? I mean, Martin was essentially a, a, numbers, um, a numbers guy first and foremost. And so he, he was brilliant when you asked him about what, you know, the, the various factors, whether they were, you know, the emergence of data and analytics and, and big data or the, the shift towards media, media buying, driving everything. Um, then, then he was talking about, you know, sort of how to build a corporate reputation or what made an outstanding brand. Um, and and I think that was that was reflected in in his conversations about PR. He, um, he understood the forces that impacted business success in public relations, um, but I don't. But I don't think 
you know, I, I, if you'd engage in a conversation, a sort of philosophical conversation, which, as you know, is really all I want to do, um, <laughs> and then, you know, th then that would have been a little unsatisfying. Yes, no doubt. Um, but even when it came to the numbers regarding his PR firms, I found him, I wouldn't say evasive, but, you know, he did not enjoy being asked why they weren't growing say at the same rate as an Edelman or a Weber Shandwick um, and understandably because they weren't growing at the same rate as those firms. Right. I mean, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether that was, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if that unique to PR, right. If you'd asked him about performing ad agencies or I think he would have been equally reluctant to give a, um, a sort of candid, Mm. assessment yeah um, how did you find him to deal with because I always thought he was pretty much only the one person that I've come across in this industry where you really had to prepare um, because he would know a lot more than you and was not afraid to let you know it <laughs> in often in, in a manner that could be construed as vindictive um, or perhaps just cantankerous <laughs> it was an interesting experience dealing with Martin. I mean, the first thing the first thing to say was that compared to anybody else in his position, right? So compared to his his counterparts and other holding companies and other agency groups, he was remarkably accessible. Yeah, right. No I mean, question. And 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 he always had something to say. Yeah, you know, which really yeah. in this industry set him apart because that's mm -hmm. that's clearly not the case. At some some of WPP's competitors, where there are, you know, there are senior people who I haven't heard from in thirty years of writing about this business. And Martin was remarkably accessible and remarkably willing to to comment on big picture in particular. But but you know, I think in that regard, uh, he was he was a, a I wouldn't say a dream to work for him, but but it was a you know it was a pleasure to have somebody like that in a position like that. Now, having said that, um, he could be prickly, right? Um, <laughs> if if he didn't he he didn't have a having made himself accessible, he didn't have a lot of patience <laughs> for what he perceived to be stupid questions. <laughs> I think that his definition of stupid expanded to include anything that was mildly critical of WPP. Having said that, I, I had two, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now of two very different experiences I had with him. So the first was when I asked him about why he had kept on, um, this was probably a couple of years after Dylan Schneider had moved on from Hill and Knowlton. And I asked him a couple of questions one time about sort of why he'd stuck with him so long. And he was quite candid um, that, that, you know, he, he should have moved earlier. And, and actually, you know, not, didn't seem at all put out by the question. On the other hand, if you ever challenged him as I, as I occasionally did, on this notion of um, horizontality, um, which is both a horrible word and I think a bad concept, um, then he could be um, fairly prickly. You know, try, try, to, um, try to make you feel as if you understood far less than he did, which by the way is entirely possible. 
I think in many cases it, it was probable um, because ultimately, especially when it came to WPP, facts and figures, you, you weren't going to know them as well as he did. Um, no, no. I, I, like you said, he, he could be tough, um, but he gave great copy. And he always had one eye on the headline. Um, he knew exactly what to say in order to get those headlines. And he would know as he was telling you. Um, I, I can remember times where he would, you know, from the stage, he'd, he'd wink because he knew um, he'd, he'd delivered your, your next headline. I don't think he was, I don't, I don't think he was relentlessly media trained. I think he was just one of those guys who instinctively got that. He did. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's vanishingly rare amongst that ilk of business yeah. leader. I mean, even amongst CEOs at lower levels, it's, you know, they, they are far more keen on, on shutting down a potential story and making it as bland as possible um, than on saying anything provocative. So it was a tough assignment, but you had to welcome it. And I would say, certainly for me, it made me a better journalist because you couldn't not be on your game and you had right. to prepare well. And, you know, those are not bad things, really. Yes. No, I mean, for somebody, for somebody with my propensity for winging it. <laughs> um, yeah, Martin, Martin was always, you know, a challenge. Um, which is not, you know, which I, which I say, you know, with, I mean, with pleasure. It, it, it was, it was always fun to interview him, because you had to bring your A game, as you say. Do you think he made companies and senior clients and the business world in general take agencies, specifically, of course, advertising, PR, and media agencies? Do you think he made them take agencies more seriously? Absolutely, in the in the business sense, yes. I mean, you know, your, your your first question, I think, as we started this discussion, was about um, how the business changed um, oh. because of Martin. Look, I, I again, I um, I remember when I started writing about public relations, um, there were in the UK um, two very distinct camps. Um, and, and one of those camps was, um, led by what I would call the PR establishment at the time, the people who were highly placed in the Institute of Public Relations or the Public Relations Consultants Association, who, um, viewed public relations as a profession uh -huh. and almost gave the impression that the business side of of public relations was a little bit sort of dirty and unbecoming. That as professionals, they should be focused on being professional, not on making money. And, and on the other side, um, there, there were people like Martin, and, and to, to be fair, probably just as significant in, in the context of the UK PR business at the time, uh, Peter Gummer or, or um, Peter Chantlington, mm. as he is now. Yes. Um, who were very focused on, um, on, on the financial side of, um, of the business. At the time, all of those who were focused on the business acted in a professional manner because you couldn't make money if you weren't professional. Um, whereas 
all of those who were advocates of the profession knew nothing about running a business. Um, and, um, and, and obviously the business guys won out. I mean, I remember outrage when Peter, Peter Gummer gave the speech saying that, uh, you know, he thought all PR agencies ought to make a 20% profit margin. And, God, and that's people, so vulgar. People, Can we not discuss this I, stuff on our podcast? I feel like we're, we're, you know, this is really lowering the tone, Paul. I mean, it was, but, but seriously, that that was that was a thing, and it's not a thing anymore, right? Nobody, nobody believes that PR agencies shouldn't make money, or indeed shouldn't talk about making money. I mean, so it helped. It, I mean, that that kind of, you know, the the Martin Peter sort of business focus i think yes helped everybody take what what we do seriously as a commercial enterprise so there's, there's no doubt he really did change the face of the entire industry now people who are cheering his demise should they be a little careful what they wish for isn't there a risk here that the 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 sun is setting on on um, on the kind of idea that, that the big agencies rise is inexorable well okay do we i mean <laughs> do we think that's a bad thing um mm. I, no i look i think that um i think that there were a lot of challenges to the wpp model um or the holding company model in general um before this happened right and we've we've spoken about them before we've talked about um yeah, we've, we've talked about why we think mid-sized firms are outperforming giant global agencies. We've talked about the importance of nimbleness and flexibility in this environment. And we've talked about um, the fact that being part of a publicly traded company um, make, makes life quite difficult for PR agencies in times of rapid change. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think all of those things are true. So all of those, all of those changes were apparent before this. Um, has this removed from the game one of the handful of people that were best able to navigate that environment? I think that's possibly true. Um, you know, we we haven't we haven't talked about this, but the um, the lack of a clear succession plan. Uh, WP um, is is perhaps the, the most troubling aspect of of all of this. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, I I mean I you know I think I think it is I think it is the end of an era, and and it leaves a it leaves a gap as well. I mean I, you know Martin was not just the spokesperson for for WPP; he was the spokesperson for our entire segment of the economy. So, you know, I, th I think I, it's not a, it, it's the end of an era. Martin was a spokesperson not only for, um, for WPP, uh, but, but for our entire segment of the industry, you know, the marketing services industry, the advertising industry, the, the public relations industry. And I don't see anybody who is willing or capable of um, stepping up to fill that role. Um, and I do think it's an important role 
you know i think um as you said there, there, there are too many ceos who keep their heads down and um and don't want to be um don't want to say anything newsworthy or notable and mm. uh, the, in, the industry's diminished when we lose one of the few people who is willing to do that mm. meanwhile um, lots of chatter now in terms of what happens next to WPP, you know, analysts suggesting it could be broken up, which seems to me to be quite a difficult thing to accomplish. Um, I would suspect, though, that it is an attractive acquisition target, as it has been, I think, for some time for, you know, the likes of an Accenture uh, mm-hmm. or, or whoever, especially given the way that the WPP share price keeps, keeps decreasing. But in terms of replacing Martin, that just seems impossible, right? They're never going to be able to replace in terms of a like for like, in terms of someone who had that level of mastery over every detail in terms of what was going on within WPP. Um, But maybe that level of control wasn't always a good thing. What do you think? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think an enterprise of that size requires highly skilled leaders at every level, right? And, and I think, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't have insight into how WBB was run on a daily basis. I suspect that Martin had um, more control and more influence than the average CEO, but I also suspect that there were a lot of people there keeping the trains running on time or whatever the, appropriate metaphor is um and so you know it's it's easy to it, it, it's easy to to sort of create this idea of uh, an all power all seeing all powerful leader um but but i'm not sure that that's the reality if that makes sense um but i you know i do think it calls into question a lot of things about the future of of, of that business um you know certainly um there are management consulting and other firms that have been circling our industry for a while that are going to take an interest in what's going on over there. Um, How much of WPP they would actually find useful and how much they would find extraneous to their, um, to their requirements going forward um, is an interesting question. You know, I think it's been quite clear from the sort of acquisitions that they've been making on a much smaller scale. Um, that the management consulting firms are most interested in sort of the data and analytics and uh, digital and social side of our universe, uh, and perhaps less interested in legacy businesses. Um, you know, uh, it'll be very interesting to watch over the next six months how this plays out. And some of it will depend on who takes over and how committed they are to maintaining Martin's vision. Right, yeah. and. I mean, do you see any implications? This is a, a relatively minor issue in the WPP world, but do you expect any implications for the burson conan wolf merger? Um, I, think it's, I, I think that's incredibly difficult to walk back at this point. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that they have any, um, any option but to press on. You know, I think I, the, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube, as it were, and, and so... <laughs> The Colgate tube. Yes, yes. 
and, and you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that as a bad thing, right? I mean, I think you know, Donna deserves her her chance. Yeah, I suspect they'll push forward with that. Okay, well, and it will also, I think, be very interesting to see what Martin does next, because, as you know, he's 73, um, has shown zero sign of slowing down, is as good, if not better than he was, let's say, 20 years ago. <laughs> Certainly looks like he's in better shape. No, I'm sure that there is some, like, wire basket manufacturing company out there <laughs> with a alarmingly low share price and no real business model that could, over the next 25 years, be turned into one of the marketing services world's giant holding company businesses. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, and of course you can follow all of our, uh, Martin Sorrell coverage on our website. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. In fact, there's a lot of good journalism out there in general. I have been really impressed with, um, a lot of the stuff I've read out there. And also as it probably goes without saying quite unimpressed with a lot of it too, but there you go. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.